Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. If you have your Bibles in, I'd like you to turn to Exodus chapter 12. And we're going to be in the last part of this chapter. And what I've entitled this is Unhinging from the World. Because what we're studying and what's going on in the world is parallel with each other. It's weird how this is happening. So as I'm studying, I'm thinking, okay, that's happening and that's happening and that's happening. It's just the weirdest thing. But I think that's a God thing, right? So when I say unhinging from the world, what you just saw in this last election is obviously a split in America. A split in America with one side wants socialism and the other side wants Judeo-Christian values and traditional values that America was built on. I talked about that. But the other thing we saw was a revealing of what's going on in the churches. And what we have seen is that there's a worldly church, a Laodicean church, that is clueless on the principles and values of God and are more worldly and, and in fact, you can't tell the difference between them and an unbeliever and then the remnant church, the believing aspect church, if you want to call it the confessing church, that stands up for the biblical values and principles that God established. And that split has been very evident, very evident. And because of that, you, you might want to ask, well, I don't understand how a Christian can vote for abortion, vote for gay marriage, vote for the Palestinians, and vote against Israel. How is that even possible? Don't they understand the scriptures? My answer is, no, they do not. The reason they don't is because they're worldly. They are Laodicean Christians. There's too much of the world in them. Now, I understand there's fake Christians, but I'm talking about real Christians that are saved, but they think like the world, and they vote like the world. They have the same values as the world. And so they're hard to distinguish between a regular unbeliever and, and themselves. How does that happen? What's going on here? What's the difference? What makes a person worldly versus a spiritual Christian who's mature and understands that we're in the world, we're not of the world? What's, what's the difference? Well, what I've discovered, and you're going to see this in the text, is there are about five main things that you have to know to unhinge from the world and not be worldly. If you don't understand these five things, you will gravitate to thinking like the world and thinking that all these things that the world thinks like are okay, like socialism. I told you before, the stat on socialism which is an ungodly economic system, is 40% of Americans think that it's the right thing to do. Okay? That's because they think unbiblically. They think unbiblically. The root problem of socialism is it steals. Communism, Marxism, socialism, all are economic systems in which steal from people. That's how it's based on. It's not based on a free market system, which the Bible supports, which you create something that people want to buy, and you sell it in the free market. That's biblical. That's more in line. Now, I'm not talking about crony capitalism, 
with some of these big tech industries and big corporations that have slave labor in China. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a biblical, moral free market system is the best. Okay, just that alone tells you that a a great portion of Christians want socialism. They're actually in favor. In fact, their churches preached it. That's why they voted for Biden. They voted for that. So let me show you these five areas real quick before we get into the text, because I'll apply this later on. But I want you to see these themes as we go to know what makes a person godly versus worldly. The first thing you have to understand and have to have under your belt in your theology is the person of God. You have to know the person of God. What I mean by that is you have to know that God is love, God is justice and holy and righteous, that God's an eternal being, that God doesn't change, that God doesn't lie. And because he doesn't lie and doesn't change, that means the principles that came to Moses and early on in in the the biblical history, 3,000, 3,500 years ago, are still good today because he doesn't change. Murder is always wrong. Stealing is always wrong, no matter what era or age you're living in. So you have to know God's person and the character qualities that he has. The second thing you have to know is God's presence. You have to understand that that passage that says, I will never leave you or forsake you, that God is always with us. You have to know that and believe in that in order to unhinge from the world. And he's going to show Israel this. But this is important because a lot of people don't think that God is with them. They don't understand God's person, and so it distorts their reality. The third thing is God's provision. God's provision is that God provides our needs. That's his promise to all believers. Now, if you don't believe that, then obviously you would gravitate to the world for your provision. And that's what a lot of Christians do. They gravitate to that. And so they, you can see, if they don't trust God for provision, they would turn to the government, per se, to provide for them, right? That's why a lot of people like these freebies from the government. But the freebies make them slaves. They don't get it. But see, the, the, the Christian that says that's okay to take, 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 doesn't trust in God's provision. That's the problem. I'll unpack this a little bit more, but these are the themes I'm working with through the text. The fourth thing. It's God's protection. God's protection. That God protects his own. He protects believers. As he protected Israel in the plagues and in the exodus, he will protect his believers. That's a, that's a guarantee. That doesn't prevent them from, obviously, you know, the wrath of man or persecution or anything like that, but prevents the believer from being hit with wrath from God. So... As I'll make a point later in the text, if God starts pouring out judgment on America, if he does that, which maybe he already is, I have a pretty good inclination he is, that judgment won't touch you. You are free from condemnation. Now, again, I'm not saying you're not free from persecution and the wrath of man, but you're free from the wrath of God. And that's important to know. Because people are, are kind of getting scared now with what's getting ready to happen here. Okay? But God protects us. And the last thing is God's promises. God's promises says he will, he will promise us things in the short term. And then when you see those promises come to fruition, 
then you can project and believe God for the long-term promises. So, for instance, moving forward in this crazy world that we're in, the promised short-term we have is that God will provide all of our needs according to his riches in Christ. Now, here's the deal. The practical aspect is this. If they shut this thing down again, the economy, this, like Joe Biden's talking about, a dark winter, they shut it down. If the truckers do the strike, like I sent an email out to warn you about, the supply lines to the grocery stores are going to stop. If you already checked Costco and the grocery stores, they're, they're out of toilet paper again. Have you noticed that? Because there's a run on it. Because they're expecting the trucker strike and they're expecting Joe Biden to shut this economy down once more. Because shutting down the economy gets them to a digital one world currency. You have to understand. We, they can't rebuild what the free market system they want. They want a, a one world system. So a shutdown will be in order to do that. Okay. That being the case, the promise then will become whether you trust in the world to supply your needs or you'll trust in God to supply your needs. And that's a matter of faith. And so it doesn't mean that you don't prepare. It doesn't mean you don't get ahead of the curve. But understand, you should not not lose sleep at night wondering whether you're going to get another meal. You should know that God will not let you starve and beg for bread, according to his scriptures. Okay. So those are the promises God makes. And then obviously the future is that God's kingdom is going to rule and reign with Messiah at the helm. Okay. Those five things are what he's going to teach Israel through the Exodus. Now that they're moving out of Egypt. And what you're going to see is all five characteristics pop up all over the text. And what God is doing is showing Israel... I'm going to lead you out, and I need you to unhinge from Egypt. They've been living in Egypt for hundreds of years. They're used to it. And remember, Egypt is a typology for the world. Okay? So it's the idea that Israel's getting saved from out of the world. He's plucking them out. When they go through the Red Sea, Paul will say that's their baptism. And then when they get into the desert wanderings, that's their new beginnings uh, and their life with the Lord and learning the ABCs and one, two, threes of theology. And then the promised land is their maturity. Okay. So you're going to see their salvation as a nation, but embedded in this is a picture of our salvation. Whereas not Moses, but Christ leads us out of Egypt or out of the world. We get moved, we re-identify now with the Messiah and not with Egypt, not with the world. And then he's taken us into the wanderings to teach us the one, two, threes and the ABCs. And the one, two, threes and ABCs are right in front of you on that screen. The five Ps, I call it, of what God tries to show us to break us free from this world. Now, when I talk about those Christians who are worldly, Laodicean, they don't understand the five Ps. They have a distortion in one or more of the areas, and they just don't, that's why they don't trust God. They trust the world to give them these things. So to break free and to be that, that Christian that's mature and on fire for God, and, and, and you can walk and attack hell with a squirt gun, you have to know these five things. That's how you unhinge. And you can face anything that's coming our way in the near future. So with that in mind, that's what I want to propose, and I'll point these out as we go. 
And so I want to start in verse 29. And it says this, And it came to pass at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. Again, as he promised, there's the God's promises, this he would do. Now understand, as this is a consequence of, his, uh, of Egypt's rebellion. They have been abusing Israel constantly, enslaving them, killing their baby boys, throwing them into the Nile and drowning them. And so what has happened is God has given his grace to Egypt. They've spurned that grace. And then he's even given grace to them through the plagues to wake them up. And they haven't woke up. And so now the hammer falls. And Egypt is going to get pounded with this last and deadly plague the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn. Now, please understand, the parallels, when you look at when Egypt is, is now going to be judged, finally, it's the idea that the iniquity of Egypt has filled up to the brim. The idea of judgment is that you have a clay pot and you have water in that, and the water symbolizes the iniquity. And then... As that water rises, it's the iniquity of that country rises and rises and rises. And then God pulls the trigger when that water's at the brim and over, starting to overflow. Then he has no choice but the judgment. The filling up is time of grace and mercy for them to repent. But when it doesn't and it hits the top, judgment follows. Now, the parallels that we have today is we just went through four years of grace. We had a president that was kind to Israel, kind to believers, and gave us the freedom of speech, the freedom to practice our religion, and whatnot. If the Supreme Court doesn't overturn this election because all the voter fraud, which is, is all over the place, all over the place, it's, it's so evident, despite what the media tells you. If they don't overturn this, the time of grace has ended. And you will see a full-blown assault on what used to be America to make it in the new America, the one-world global America that joins up with the rest of the countries into globalism. That's where it's going if something doesn't arrest this. And yes, a lot of this is out of our control. But you keep praying, keep praying that the Lord intervenes. But if he doesn't, then guess what the message is? The iniquity has risen to the top. I have no other choice but the hammer. I will give America what it wants. Now, that's sad. And I'm not trying to be pessimistic. But it's how you read the situation. Because this amount of grace that we had the last four years, what did the churches do with it? They monkeyed around. They didn't understand what was given to them. So instead of going after lost souls and saving the lost and biblically training their people to be more mature, the churches played games. The churches played the game of nickels and noses and therefore dumbed the messages down to second grade level, put on a rock show to entertain people, and did nothing for evangelism, nothing for their own people, and just became fat on government money by having government programs. Well, the remnant got it, the remnant understood it, but the rest of the church didn't. And therefore, maybe that grace has ended for the Laodicean part of the church. Now it's time to be judged. 
And judgment starts with the house of God first, doesn't it? So that being the case, let's do some background on this, a little, so a little more detail. And verse 12 in the same chapter talks about this. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both men and beasts, and against all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgment. I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. Now, what you see here is the presence of God. He personally is going to attend to this. He's not going to send an angel to do it. He personally is going to do this. Now, this is unprecedented. When Yahweh gets involved, really, this is a pre-incarnate Jesus who is doing this, okay? So it's Jesus who is executing this, taking the life of the firstborn. He will have, you know, a band of uh, destroying angels behind him, but really it's him leading the charge. So the picture you want to have in your mind is that Jesus, the warrior king, is leading this holy war. Now, this is a holy war. And because it's a holy war, God fights in that war. The angels fight in that war. Because what's going on in Egypt on the ground is also going on in the heavenlies. And you have to understand this principle. When you see bad stuff happening on the ground, it's because bad stuff or a war is happening in in the heavenlies, in the unseen realm. There's a one-to-one correspondence. Please understand, in Egypt, what was happening is the demonic realm and the, uh, the fallen angels, and even including Satan, were trying to annihilate Israel off the planet because of the Abrahamic covenant. And so God then has to fight a war for Israel, a war they can't fight on their own, that he personally will take the war and be the victor. But again, it pictures God as the warrior king and fighting for those who can't fight for themselves. This is an application I want all of us to understand. What you just saw in the election was absolute evil. As hardcore evil as I've ever seen in U.S. history. This is bad. You know, the funny thing is, I've been having dreams. I'm not getting mystical or anything. But I've been having dreams where I'm telling people in the dreams how evil this was. It just tells me what's going on inside of me emotionally. Because I can see this is bad. Okay, when you see something this bad, and all of them are in cahoots, in the heavenlies, something is happening. And God is allowing the spirit of lawlessness, the spirit of Antichrist, to move through our country. And it's affecting a lot of people. They don't even know it's happening. But in the spiritual realm, this war is happening. And here, understand, God's in control. Make no mistake about that. But what he is doing is letting the spirit of Antichrist and the spirit of lawlessness have enough leash to hang itself. Just like he did with Egypt. Evil is not getting away with things. He is letting them have what they want so that, in the, in, that it heads into the tribulation. And in the tribulation, this is where he will pound evil. This is where the hammer will fall on all these people who think they're getting away with fraud and, and all this evil that's happening. Their time is coming. There's a payday coming for them. Unless they repent and get right with Jesus, payday will have the 21 plagues of revelation hit them, and they will not survive it. That's the truth of the matter, unless they repent. Hopefully they do. If not, it will be hell to pay. 
But this holy war has continued on. And let me give you a few more details about this. Verse 22 says, And you shall take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and strike the lintel of the two doorposts with the blood that is in that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. Now, we've talked about that. I'm not going to unpack that. But we, we, we went into depth about this. But really what you want, I want you to see here is God's provision of protection. He will protect his people from the destroying angels by the blood of the lamb, which is the same true with us. We are protected because of the blood of the lamb. Verse 23, for the Lord will pass through and strike the Egyptians, and then he sees the blood on the lintel and two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your house to strike you. So the idea is that Yahweh leads out as the warrior king and behind him are a band of destroying angels, death angels, those who have the, the task of taking the lives of people. Now, the death angel will appear back and forth through the New Testament, sorry, the Old Testament. And that these destroying angels have the task of taking lives. One angel killed 185,000 people in Hezekiah's day. That was a destroying angel. A destroying angel was also ready to rip apart Jerusalem when David started numbering the children of Israel in his day. But that was prevented and stopped. So these angels have the task of taking people's lives. That, again, shows you the proof of God's presence, the proof of his promise that this would be the tenth plague that would come down on Egypt and allow Israel to be freed at this point in time. Now let's return back to the text, verse 29. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of livestock. So the Lord is fulfilling his promise that every social structure of society is hit by this, even the animals, to make his point. And again, it's a pileup of judgment. But I want you to think about this. Why the judgment? And I want you to, I want you to do a parallel with what's going on right now in current events. I want you to hear why Israel's being pounded. And I want you to think, is America doing the same thing? Think about this. Number one, the main reason, one of the main reasons Israel's going to get this judgment is the oppression of God's people, the oppression of Israel. Obviously, the enslavement, the killing of the babies, and whatnot. Okay. Anytime a nation or a country sets itself up against God's people, whether that's the church or Israel, they are asking for trouble. Right now, America has set itself up against the church, not allowing it to, to participate, not allowing it to do its free exercise of religion. We're underground right now. Also... We've had a president in the last four years that is friendly to Israel, pro-Israel. I didn't agree with all the moves, like dividing the land, but nonetheless still pro-Israel. If the, so the Supreme Court doesn't overturn this, you're going to have a president that can't stand Israel, that's actually going to refund the Palestinians and get it back into the deal with Iran that Obama made. Now you think, well, you're getting political, Brandon. No, 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 this is biblical because the issue is Israel. If you're unfriendly to Israel, the Abrahamic covenant promises you will get cursings. If you bless Israel, you'll get blessing. And guess what? When these other enemy nations around the world heard that President Trump had lost and that Biden might get in there, guess who was applauding? Russia, Iran, 
Palestinians, China, North Korea, all the people who are enemies of America were saying, yay, we're glad that Trump's out, we're glad that Biden's in. That should signal to everybody what's going on here. A person is known not only by their friends, but they're known by their enemies. When your friends are Iran, Palestinians, Russia, what side are you on? Oh, the communist side, I gotcha. The pro-Islamic side, gotcha. The red-green axis, I gotcha. Totally. That's scary. That China likes you? Hmm. Second, the Egyptians were murdering babies. Israel babies, to be specific, throwing them in the water and drowning them. The male boys, right? 60 million babies have been killed in the United States. If Biden gets in there, him and Kamala are so pro-abortion. Don't think that Planned Parenthood's going away anytime soon. They will hook up with the UN to make it an international right for abortion all over the planet. It won't just be here in America. It'll be all over the planet. They've already talked about that. How's that different? Three, Egypt, through Pharaoh, had put out propaganda about the Jews. The propaganda was that the Jews are going to attack us because they're a military might. The Jews didn't even have a military. But you know the whole principle, you tell a lie long enough and you keep repeating it, people start believing it because they have no critical thinking, and the Egyptians started believing it. How's that any different than our, what our media has done? How's that any different than the propaganda that keeps spewing out now Fox and the rest of them. But how's that different? The other thing, they suppress the truth about the Hebrews. The Hebrews were a peace-loving people, but they enslaved them because they thought they were a threat. The suppression of truth in this last year has an, is an all-time high in the United States. All-time high. They lie to us about the pandemic that coronavirus, that Wuhan China virus, nothing more than just simple a virus, but they've turned it into a plague, a pandemic, which it's really a pandemic. They've got everybody afraid. You're going to die, you're going to die, you're going to die. Yes, it's real, and people do die. They have comorbidities, and they're, they're typically elderly, okay? But for the rest of us, we shouldn't stop anything what we're doing. But yet, they're planning on doing another shutdown, that's what they want. That's what dark winter is about. Dark winter is a term that Biden used. Did you catch that? That was a term that comes from event 201 in October of, of 2019, where they war game the coronavirus with Bill Gates and John Hopkins and the rest of his crony globalists. That term dark winter is not something Biden made up. That's a terminology that talked about the pandemic. Oh, wow. They're not hiding it anymore. Have you noticed that? They're not even hiding it. We're just going to put it out there. Wow. So, so the truth has been suppressed. Okay? This election, the truth was suppressed. All I know and all you know, Trump is winning, Trump is winning, landslide, landslide. All of a sudden, they're going to bed. The vote counters are going to bed. They're going to take a break. Do you know why they had to take a break? So Dominion and the hammer or scorecard could go in and flip-flop the ballots. They've done that many times. 
And they, they used it on this. And so Dominion had all these glitches, and the hammer changed votes. That is called voter suppression. That is, it is so evil. If this continues and doesn't get overturned and nothing happens out of this, you can kiss goodbye any free election in the United States at this point in time because they will turn it. They will use this. How is that any different than Egypt suppressing the truth? How is this any different? Following blindly their satanically inspired leaders. You see, like I've mentioned before with Egypt, Pharaoh is completely satanic. I mean, he's being used by Satan to destroy the Jews, no doubt about it. I can't see any difference between what's going on in politics. These people are satanic. They're on a whole different level than human evil. They're on a whole different spiritual level of evil. How's that any different? And lastly, Egypt was following their ridiculous religion, false religion, worshiping all these crazy gods who are nothing more than fallen angels and demons. You know what's taking the place here in America? Christianity has been kicked out. They don't want us here. They don't want Christians here anymore. But in turn, what America is now taking on is a new religion. And this religion is what we call a new age cosmic humanism, where man is at the top, man is the God, and man gets to call the shots in what he thinks he ought to do. Now, the principle here in the new age cosmic humanism is this. Do what makes you feel good. And that's right for you. Hmm. Do you know what the first principle in Satanism is? The same thing. Do what makes you feel good. That's the first principle, first law in Satanism. Yeah, you can, you could look, Anton LaVey wrote that. Okay? And yet that's what's being practiced in America. Please tell me, in evaluating Egypt and now evaluating America, how are they different? So what does that tell you then when you think about judgment? Egypt is now going to be hammered. Could it possibly be that now that the grace has ended, the rise of iniquity in America has risen to the top and God has no other choice because of his holiness and justice than to level judgment? I don't know. We'll see. But you will know if this election doesn't get overturned, that will be your sign that something has enacted that's going to go really to a bad level. Really. With that being the case, then let's continue on. And uh, again, all of this is the Lord fulfilling his promises. Verse 30. So Pharaoh rose in the night, he and all his servants, and all of the Egyptians. There was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. And notice this phrase that there was a great cry in Egypt. It's interesting. The Hebrew is a, a, the Hebrew word for wailing. It's a great wail, loud wail. Well, why is that significant? Because it's the same Hebrew word that was used for the children of Israel when they were wailing under the bondage and enslavement of the Egyptians. Now, what is that signal? It signals that God has reversed things. You made my people well. I'm going to flip it and make you well. It's divine retribution. Please understand that anything that happens to you and I under the wrath of man moving forward will eventually be paid back to them 
in the tribulation. I know and you and I are going to, you know, suffer some type of persecution. We're already suffering a form of it right now in legal persecution. But one day the tables will be reversed and God will turn it on them, just like he did here. We continue on, it says, verse 31, Then he called for Moses and Aaron by night and said, Rise, go out from among my people. That's number one, go. Notice that word, go. Both you and your children of Israel. And go, that's number two, serve the Lord as you have said. Also, take your flocks and your herds as you have said and be gone. That's in the Hebrew, it's a third go. Now, this is interesting. Exactly as God promised, it's happening. God told Moses, the tenth plague, he will demand you go. He will drive you out, Moses. And therefore, God is making good on his promises. But what I want you to notice is the threefold go, go, go. That's significant in the Hebrew. What does that mean? It means an emphasis on exactly what God said. God is trying to get the message to Moses. See, I told you. See, I told you. This is what I mean. When I make a promise, I make good on it. And so it's there to emphasize to Moses, you can trust me. When I make a promise to you, you can trust me. Which means that Moses, when he goes into the desert with God and the children of Israel, will be told far-reaching promises that they will have to trust in. Because they won't see. It's a far promises, many far promises he will make to Israel. And basically what he's using this is say, see, I make good on my promises. You can trust me. Now, with that being said, I want you to notice the last phrase of this passage. Now, this is interesting. Pharaoh says, go, and then he says, and bless me also. I mean, look at this, look at the passage. Look at the end of the passage. And bless me also. You see that little last phrase? How dare he? What's Pharaoh thinking? Is he out of his mind? Well, we know he's been out of his mind satanically, but he now is saying to Moses, go, 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 and, but bless me. Ah, I want you, I want you to pick up on this. Moses was not respected by Pharaoh. But now Pharaoh does respect him. Now here's the interesting thing. It's, a, it's tying Moses with Jacob. Jacob is the last Jew to bless a Pharaoh. And if you recall, Joseph went down into Egypt, became second in command. You remember that story? And then because of the famine, the, the 70 people that constituted the nation of Israel moved down into Goshen under, under Joseph and the Pharaoh that was kind to Israel. And because of his kindness, the patriarch, Jacob, blesses Pharaoh, okay? What it shows is that the Pharaoh understood spiritually that Jacob was superior spiritually, that God was behind Jacob and therefore would receive a blessing from a superior, okay? In the ancient world, you receive blessings from superiors. And so that Pharaoh was so humbled by things, he was willing to see the patriarch as a superior. 
Now, with Moses and through the ten plagues, Moses is now being put in that position as a superior to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh is now asking his superior to give him a blessing. Now, with that being said, this is what happens when they revert, when God reverses things. Right now, you and I in this world are not the head, but we're the tail of culture. So is Israel. Israel is not, not the head now, but they are the tail. The world despises you, the church, and Israel. But one day, one day, the promise is made to us in Revelation 3 to the Philadelphia church. One day, I will have them bow down before me. And when they're on their knees, and we're there, he says, I will have them confess that I loved you. It's the same thing. One day, all these people in this world who despised us, who hated us as being Christians, said that we're too narrow-minded, too righteous, too holy, whatever they called us, will one day bow a knee to the Messiah, and as they're bowing a knee to Messiah, Messiah will force out of their mouth, admit that these were my people and that I loved them. Admit to that, and they will. That is actually a promise made to us. You will get one day your vindication. That's important. We are, don't seek vindication in this life. You will get your vindication in front of Christ when he puts them on their knees, just like he did to Moses and Pharaoh. Moses is now the superior, and Pharaoh is the inferior. Amazing reversal of tables. That being the case, let's continue on. Verse 33, And the Egyptians urged the people that they might send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. So the people already are afraid of Israel now about what's happening, and they want them to get out as soon as possible because they don't know if this place is going to end. It's going to just keep killing people. So they're, the fear of that is causing the Egyptians to have favor on Israel. Now, this is again, this is a promise because God said this would happen, and it is. But let's continue to read on, verse 34. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, having their kneading bowls bound up in their clothes on their shoulders. Now the children of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, and they asked for from the Egyptians articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing. Now this is, again, more divine favor because of the fear of them. So basically, Israel can just go up to any Egyptian and says, give, give, me what, give me what I need. And they're actually plundering the Egyptians without having to fight a war. And all these articles of silver and gold and clothing is going to be given to Israel. Again, God is providing. Now, now why the significance of taking the plunder from Egypt with the Hebrews? Because, folks, God already knows they're going to have to survive in the desert 40 years. God is going to use those gold, precious stones, items, whatever they got from the Egyptians to fund them for the next 40 years, and also to build a tabernacle from Egyptian gold and Egyptian silver. 
So the place of worship, the tabernacle, will be made out of the plunder they got from the Egyptians, and then they will be able to trade and bargain with traders coming in and out wherever Israel is camped. It will cause them to be able to survive. Ah, do you see this? God's provision. Notice that they only took a little bit amount of food. All they had is a little bit of dough. They wrapped it up and took it. Now, that dough is not going to last but a couple days. So the Israelites know they're going to run out of food. So guess what? They're going to experience the provision of God as he provides for Israel's water and food. He will, they will learn about that. And that's what they're seeing all of this. And I want you to, and I to see about this. They will be able to survive it. And so will you and I. Until the day of the rapture, we could see a lot of crazy things. But what you're learning from this is you will be able to survive. God will make a way somehow, some way for you. This is how he provides. Verse 36. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they, they granted them what they requested. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. Just as the Lord said, that's the promise. But here's what I want to point out. God will give Israel favor many times, whether it's through fear or other circumstances, okay? So in this situation, they're getting favor because of fear. They're totally afraid of the Hebrews. And therefore, that's why they're giving up all their loot to the, the, the Hebrews, okay? So it's through fear. In your life, when God wants to accomplish something that you can't accomplish and you've reached everything you could do, and you know this is what God wants for you, but you can't do it humanly, then you have to let God fight that battle, give it over to him, and let him fight. And what will happen is if God wants that for you, and it is his will, he will make that happen, and then you will be given favor. Somehow, some way in the circumstance, you will be given favor. The person will like you, or in some cases, they will fear you. And that fear will motivate them to give us favor. Amazing how that works, isn't it? Let's continue on. Verse 37. Then the children of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides children. Now, what this is, is it's, it's trying to tell you how many people were with Moses at the time. If that's just counting 600,000 men, it's not counting the women and children. So the estimates, the best estimates of how big the exodus was is about 2 million people are with Moses. Think about this. Their time in Goshen, when they came down with Joseph, was 70 people. Within that period of time, they have turned into 2 million people, which is incredible. Despite Despite Egypt trying to destroy them by throwing the babies in the water, despite the enslavements which have, which, have, which have shortened their life, Israel was able to be blessed by God and multiply to this level. This is the level they need to be a nation and to have a fighting army because they're going to have to fight at this point in time. And again, you might say, you might say this, why didn't God, when the, the minute they started getting enslaved, why didn't God just come in there and rescue them? Because he needed them to grow. If he just rescued them, the dynamics would have changed. He needed them to, to multiply into two million people, and then he can take them out. 
So sometimes the delay that you and I are wanting of judgment, like this last election, I'm saying, God, would you please intervene and stop this evil, stop this nonsense? It's the same prayer that the Israelis said when they said, God, please intervene and get us out of this slavery. And there's delay, 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 delay. And God was saying, I will, but not yet. That's a hard one to accept. You want God's intervention to stop this evil, and he says, I will, but not yet? Oh, then I have to trust him for the rest of the way. Wow. Now let's go to the application. What I've shown you through this is all those five areas came out in the text. They're there. They're there for Israel to see so they can unhinge from leaving uh, Egypt and going with Yahweh in the desert. And the same is true for us. Let me unpack this a little bit more. Let me reiterate the five. The first thing is the person of God. How to unhinge from the world. It's easy enough to say, well, you've got to know right doctrine about God. And everyone would agree with that. But the problem is, what I've noticed is that's not easy for a lot of people. They can admit it in their head about God, but they can't make the crossover from what they have thought about God. Now, here's what I notice. People get their version of God from their parents. They get their version of God from the church they grew up in, which was either good or bad. It depends. Or they get their version of God through trauma and pain. And that those typical, typical three areas is what caused them to have distorted views about God. So when they see that God says as his person, I will never leave you. They see God as an abandoner because they were abandoned in their life, and that's what they they learned about God mistakenly, and they think God abandons them. Hence, if they think God is an abandoner, they will gravitate to the world to not be abandoned. That's how they stay stuck. If God says, I'm a loving God, they won't believe that because growing up, they were taught about a a critical, judgmental God because their parents were so judgmental on them, they lost all confidence and they, they, they project that on the God and say, well, God's the same way as my mom and dad. And therefore, they have a distorted view of God. So therefore, do you think they're going to gravitate to that kind of God? No, they're going to gravitate to the world to find that. It is vitally important that you believe in the attributes of God. Not that you just know about them. Because if you have a hard time bridging from your past into right theology, it's because you have a distorted view of the person of God. Let's go to number two, God's presence. Now, here's what happens with this. As you see, God's with them. He says, I'm going to go to war for you, Israel. I'm going to fight for you. I'm literally in your life. But if you grow up with trauma, you grow up with bad parenting, bad church... They may not have taught you that God is always with you, that you don't have his presence, that you have to gain his acceptance through works or something like that. And therefore, you're working for acceptance, working for his presence, which is wrong. It's a distorted view of that. But a lot of people look in their life and they say, where was God when this was happening to me? Where was God? And they have no one to help them at that time. So they do their best to try to figure things out, but they get a distorted view of God because, well, God wasn't there. He just wasn't there for me. So I guess when Brandon says that God is present with us, 
I didn't experience that. So they're basing their view of God based on their experience rather than what the Bible says. All you have to do is look with a clear view on your past and you will see that God has always been there for you. Always. He's never left you. But your pain, your trauma, whatever, will make you think that he wasn't there. Let's go to the third one. God's provision. This is a hard thing for a lot of worldly Christians. God says, I will supply all your needs. Do you believe that? Because if you don't, you will gravitate and stay in the world for the world to provide for your needs. Whether that's money, job, employment, whatever that might be, retirement, that will be where you get your needs met because you don't believe God can provide for you. Because when you were growing up, whatever you were taught, whatever you perceived reality as, as you didn't see that God provided what you wanted. Notice what I just said. What you wanted, not what you needed. The problem is when we're growing up and we're going through life and we don't know Jesus... You will think that God is your genie and should grant your every wish. And I'm not talking even about, you know, having things. I'm not, I'm just talking about the way your life went. Why did I have this? Why did I have this growing up? Why did my life take this path? Okay. And you will say, God, I wanted a better life and you didn't give me a better life. And wait a second. You're now starting to put wants as needs. And that's where the confusion starts happening. God promises I will meet your needs. Now think about needs versus wants. You might say, I wanted, or I, I wanted a better family. I wanted a, a, a better childhood. I wanted a better teenage years. They were disaster. They were disasters for me. And I'm mad about that. And then God didn't give me that. He gave other people that, but he didn't give me that. So they start getting mad at God. Why didn't he provide for me? And therefore, if they keep thinking that way, they think that God doesn't provide. That God has his favorites and he only gives the favorites stuff. If that's a distortion, that will keep you worldly. That will keep you anchored right in the world. Because where are you going to go for provision? Israel's going to go out in the desert and there's no food or water. They have only one person to look to, which is Yahweh. And that's what God's saying to you and I. Trust me, I will provide for you. So here's the deal. When you're looking for toilet paper, shoot a prayer up. And say, Lord, we're out of toilet paper. And see if he doesn't provide for that. I guarantee you'll find some toilet paper or napkins or something. He'll provide for that. Don't worry about it. He knows you have to go to the bathroom. He understands. Four, God's protection. Now, again, God says, I will protect you. He doesn't protect you all times from the wrath of man, but he protects you from him, protects you from his judgment. What happens is when we grow up, our life becomes very unstable, very unstable with all the crazy stuff that starts happening to us, right? You have divorces, you have uh, all kinds of things, people die, you have all kinds of addictions and all kinds of things that are, that are coming all in our lives, and it makes our lives very unstable. And the question is, why didn't God protect me? Why didn't he spare me from all of this? Why didn't he stop this? Well, the theological answers are, are, are free will and people can sin against you in, the, in our world. That's the fallen world we live in. But you get a distortion about that and you start thinking, God is not a protector. He just doesn't... I know he exists, but he's not a protector. 
Therefore, you will find protection in the world system, whatever that protection is. Security, money, power, fame. I don't know what it is. It, it could be anything that gives a person security rather than God. And thus, they stay worldly. And the fifth one is God's promises. God's promises are meant to give us a hope, a future. And because of that promise of the future, he wants us to look forward rather than to the past or even to the present. He is saying that one day I'm going to make all things new. One day it's all going to be different. One day there will be no election fraud. There one day won't be any more sin. It'll be a, 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 totally eliminated by the Messiah. And that's where we put our hope that day is coming. That gives us the ability to endure now when you have hope. It gives you the strength to keep moving on. That the best is yet to come. That gives you strength. But if you don't believe in those promises, and this is the, the crazy thing. A lot of the promises come from eschatology. They come from the end times. They come from prophecy. And yet the church has removed prophecy from its, its vocabulary. Why is it that the rapture is called the blessed hope? And yet the churches don't even teach it anymore. You've just taken the hope away from the people. You've gutted them from their hope. And so I guess what's going to happen is exactly what we see. The church gravitates to the world for hope. Gravitates in these people. That's when you know the, that they have become worldly. So it's not as easy as we say, just stop being worldly. It's not that easy. You have to go back and say, do I have these five things in line with God or do I'm getting these five things from the world? Let me show you a picture. This is a two-headed snake. It's a two-headed cobra. Apparently, this happens a lot with snakes because um, you don't see too many mammals like with two heads like this, but it happens with snakes. So this is a two-headed cobra. This cobra has one heart, one set of lungs, one digestive tract, but it has, it has two heads. And this is the weird part. Each head is independent of the other one, even though they share the same body. Therefore, with, with the problem with this cobra and other snakes that are two-headed is that both snakes want to go in their own direction. But they can't because they get stuck because one wants to go here, the other one wants to go there. The other problem with it is when they eat, they both get hungry. And they both want water, food and water. But apparently, the, the, this particular snake, the, the right head, I think, is the more, dom more dominant one. And so it pulls into the direction to eat and drink. And sometimes when it's drinking, it'll, it'll pull the other head under the water and almost kill it. Because the ones want to eat more, it's more dominant. So there's more, a, there's a dominant head, yet there's two heads thinking differently. They have their own set of eyes, their own set of sensors in their head. But the problem is they share the same body. Now, here's a picture, I hate to say it, of us. We are a two-headed snake, so to speak. We have one body, one soul, one spirit, now that we're born again, but we have two natures in us. We have an old nature... And we have a new nature in Christ. That's what was given to us when we were born again. Now, this old nature wants to gravitate to the world for the five Ps. They want that, that old nature wants your protection and in in, 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 in provisions, all to come from what the world offer you. 
The new nature, though, pulls in this direction, saying, I want what God wants to offer. And thus, the conflict. Because both natures are pulling in opposite directions. Now, here's the deal. How do you move from the, new na- from the old nature being dominant to the new nature being the dominant pull to the Messiah? How do you do that? Simple. It's the theology has to be correct, and then you have to see your past and look in that past for the five Ps. Because Satan is using your past to blind you to God. You have to then go back in the past and put the five Ps down and look, where was God's promises? Where was God's provision? Where was God's presence? Where was God's protection? And you go through all of that and you reprocess what you went through. And once you reprocess it, renew your mind, you will see that God was always there. You will see that God always provided. He never left you. He never abandoned you. And hence, when you see that, the truth sets you free, and you can leave the world. Leave the worldly behind and go for the Lord. Let's pray. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.